Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the haunting task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt and today we have a truly haunting three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's really Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we also have our semi-casual fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know you have walled all those up with your left arm. You'll understand if you've read this (laughs) week's book. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lamy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bingelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, and James Sumnall. And we'd also like to give special thanks to Hans Wax for his help with some editing on this episode. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We now present our latest installment of what we like to call Technically Target, with the novelization of the radio play The Ghosts of Endspace. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who the Ghosts of Endspace, adapted by Barry Letts from his radio script that aired on BBC Radio 2 from 12096 to 22496, published by Virgin Books in February 1995. As of this recording in July of 2020, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 256 pages. This is officially the first novelization not published under the Target imprint, since it had by then been retired, mainly because there were no new stories to adapt at that point. It came out in the Missing Adventures range and was the only audio play to be novelized in that range. The other novelization downtime was of a fan-produced video, and for those of you listening at home, yes, I know, a radio play was adapted previously in the Target range. We'll get there. We are covering it. It is a Target book. Now, if you're listening carefully there, you may have noticed a strange discrepancy in the dates. The radio play this book is based on was broadcast in 1996, 
The book itself was published almost a year earlier in 1995. No reason has ever been given for this. To my knowledge, and I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, there's only been one other instance of the novelization being released before the story aired, and that was The Five Doctors. The official release date of that book was only a day before its BBC transmission date, but both David Tennant and I got our copies more than a week before that, as he told me at uh, C2E2. I remember uh, getting a first edition of The Five Doctors in McDougall's bookshop in Paisley um, before the show had even been on TV. It came out, like, I think by mistake, a few days earlier. Um, unless I'm misremembering this. Is that a fact? I read it Saturday before yeah. myself. So. Right, there you go. Um, uh, so I think that became a favourite just because it was so exciting. By the time this book had come out, people had probably forgotten the plot, which is a shame, as there's actually a good bit more plot in the book than in the play. I also said this was out of print, but apparently you can still buy it for about $20 on Amazon, as well as some other missing adventures. So if you're looking to fill in some of the gaps in your collection, now's your chance. As with the last play, this cast includes a few names already familiar to Doctor Who fans. Max Vilmio was played by Stephen Thorne, who played Azal in The Demons, Omega in The Three Doctors, the lead Ogron in Frontier in Space, and will later play Eldrad in The Hand of Fear. Uncle Mario... I know that sounds like a Nintendo game. Uncle Mario... <laughs> it's me, Mario! ...was played by Henry Taub, who appeared in The Seeds of Death and Terror of the Autons. He's the one that gets smothered by a chair, by the way. Are you uh, telling us this was not a genuine Italian or Sicilian accent that we were reading? No, not in the least. <laughs> what a I mean, Mamma mia! <laughs> yeah, exactly. As woke as the 90s were, they weren't that woke. And while she never appeared in the show itself, the actress playing Maggie is Sandra Dickinson, who is the ex-wife of Peter Davison and the mother of Georgia Moffat, which makes her the mother-in-law of David Tennant. Huh. She's, yeah. She's also best known on TV for playing Trillian in the original BBC version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Message. You didn't give that consigliere guy any message to take back? I didn't. What was it then? So it's that kind of voice that she does for Maggie. And there's something we need to address before getting into our discussion, and that's the title. As we've already said, Barry Lett served as executive producer on Tom Baker's last season, and in that season there's a three-story mini-arc in which the TARDIS transits into another universe called E-Space, as opposed to normal space where we all live, which is called N-Space. Yeah, exactly. I remember quite clearly how excited I was when I first started reading this book, thinking that it might somehow link back to those stories, only to discover that Let's uses the term N-Space here to refer to something entirely different, despite the fact that he was overseeing the very season in which the term was first used. So that's a little disappointing. <laughs> in all obviously. fairness, I continually forgot the title of the book while I was reading it, and it was in my hand, so... He can, it's understandable if he forgot something from a few years earlier. Really? Oh, God. <laughs> There's also an interesting thing. If you do the math, the dating of the comet's appearance means that the story takes place in 1975, which is going to be important later. So remember that. Not for this discussion, but several books down the line, the dates are going to come up. Okay. All right. Now, let's just get the dramatic reading of the back cover out of the way, shall we? I'll do it this time. 
When the barrier gives way, this planet will be flooded by all the evil in endspace. But at the moment, I have no idea how to stop it. Sarah Jane Smith on holiday with her chum Jeremy in a bad case of writer's block, is amazed to find the Brigadier in the same part of Italy. He is there to help a distant relative whose tiny island home has been threatened by American mobster Max Vilmio. When the ghosts that haunt the island's crumbling castle are joined by less benign specters, the Brigadier summons the Doctor, who discovers that the whole of mankind is threatened by the plans of the ruthless Vilmio and his mysterious Hooded henchman. So, first impressions. Allison, what were your first impressions for this one? That it was 377 pages long, and I've already ranted about this on our previous installment. <laughs> yes, you did, actually. I think I took you to task over the length of it. And yes, it is actually a, a scan in front of, instead of an OCR. Well, there was actually some evidence in here that it was OCR. There were a few artifacts. Scanning. T- yeah. Yeah. But yes, but it was still uh, plenty. Yeah, that's true. It is probably the longest book we have read to date, because I think The Plotters was shorter and mm-hmm. much more enjoyable than this, even though I'm selling yeah. this one short. Dalton, what was your first impression? <laughs> I, did, I, I wasn't sure quite what to expect. Um, ghosts, it, it was. I thought it was going to be spookier. I thought it was going to be something more than what it was, and what it was was kind of meh to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I I thought, as I'm used to, uh, I thought there was going to be some kind of scientific explanation for things other than Mm -hmm. maybe a not even a theological, but just a more straightforward answer. Like, I thought the ghosts may have been some kind of experiment or something that science could explain more than it just being like, yeah, they're real. They're ghosts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The doctor who actually comes down quite hard in this story on the question of whether heaven and hell exist and the answer is yes but (laughs) yes but yeah yeah which is just bizarre that's about the the weirdest probably the most significant thing about the story and it's something that people tend to miss in the general crappiness is the fact that it is Barry Letts who is the show's resident Buddhist coming down on the side of whether heaven and hell actually exist in a very uh, very specific way, which is just odd. Yeah. Is he actually a Buddhist, or he just read a book about it once? Because he, it seemed very cut-rate California Buddhism to me. He was very much a Buddhist. As a matter of fact, okay. uh, not the next story, but the next one after that, we're going to get a story that is absolutely chock-full of buddhist themes and that is specifically because let's co-wrote it and yeah there's no indication that by 1995 1996 whenever this went out that he had gotten away from those beliefs even though as some commentators have pointed out this story has a very specifically catholic version of the heaven and hell dichotomy to the point that it actually has something approaching a purgatory as well mm-hmm it's just not named in the text. How so? Because I, I was actually thinking it was more of a Buddhist take of, you know, these people are only suffering because they believe I mean, that they deserve to suffer, therefore they do suffer. Yeah. And yet, I'm, in fact, I don't remember which commentators said this about it, but I do remember reading somewhere that 
it felt like a very Catholic take on it. And of course, I'm not a Catholic, so I don't know for sure. Hopefully somebody listening to the show is. <laughs> you never know. But since we're all godless pagans otherwise. I think maybe an idea that the people who were suffering had a Catholic belief in heaven and hell, therefore that's what they were experiencing, is how I read that. Yeah. I don't think that this would pass the sniff test for any known form of Catholicism I've ever encountered. Well, in that case, maybe I should back off from that because it's not my belief at all. It's the belief of whoever the commentator was that I read. It might have been the online discontinuity guide where I picked that particular nugget I think up. there's a point there, but that maybe it's taking a, a what we think of as a Catholic form of heaven, hell, and purgatory, because that's what the people who have died that they're encountering expect it to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rather than that, rather than that's the basic nature of it. I was thinking specifically when I was thinking that it had its own version of purgatory about what happens to the girl, and I've already forgotten her name. I've cleansed Louisa. my palate. Louisa, thank you. That what happens to Louisa is neither heaven nor hell. She's stuck in the in-between. And according to some interpretations, that's exactly what purgatory is, that it's not heaven or hell, but it's still a form of self-induced punishment that one has to be prayed out of. But that may be a, a misunderstanding on my part of how the whole thing goes, because I'm a, you know, good Southern Baptist boy. <laughs> As if. So there's that. Mm -hmm. This story is also extremely significant for two things. One, that we get words like tits and chicken shit. Mm -hmm. Yes. In it. And yes. boobs. Although I did appreciate that um, Jeremy has a sort of thrill of naughtiness that he even thinks the word boobs. Yes, and the immortal line didn't, didn't come here to deal with some mafioso with cow shit between his toes, which is <laughs> the most visceral line I think we've gotten in a very long time. And it's coming out of Barry Letts, for crying out loud. Very much more a PG-13 novel than we're used to reading. Although, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the title of the, the last Letts when we read was similar. Yeah, well, that's the 90s for you right there. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about how very 90s these books both were, and I don't I don't mean that as any sort of an insult, just a very different flavor than, than the ones we've read that were from the 70s and early 80s. But I'm thinking about the age of the audience reading this. Oh, yeah. Yes, Doctor Who was continually in reruns, and there were new kids watching it all the time and discovering it, but that it was perfectly reasonable to assume that for a book about a 70s Doctor that came out in the 90s, that it would be mostly a teen and adult audience mm -hmm. in a way that that assumption wouldn't necessarily have been in place for the Target books we've read that came out, you know, mid-70s to mid-80s. Well, that's exactly right. The intended audience for the Target books that we've been reading would have aged out of them by this point, even though obviously we haven't. But they would have been, as I was, in my 20s, in the 90s. And most of the people writing for those book series were in their 20s and 30s. And then you had old hands like Letts and Terrence Dix and Nigel Robinson. But I think Nigel Robinson wasn't much older than 30 at that point either. They were the only ones really from the original series writing for either The New Adventures or The Missing Adventures, which is kind of why we get Jeremy Fitzoliver coming back not once but twice in the later books. Luckily, we won't be reading those unless we decide to go into the BBC books later. And I don't know, I may be dead by then. So Probably think... from... Oh, hey, God, I want to hear what Tony's going to be dead from. Probably oh, from... I was going to say heat stroke. 
Ah, because, oh. of course, lack of AC here in the room, but that's fine. I was just going to say something else uh, that kind of we, we get that we haven't had in a while is this book is a lot more violent Ooh, um, yeah. in its descriptions of what's happening to the characters, um, but also the things that are happening to the characters. <laughs> Hearing about Maggie's uh, childhood and her relationship with her father, it's, yeah. it's yeah, it's it's a lot more uh, serious material than we've really had. Well, and also very much of that era where it's common to have an origin story of usually it's a villain who is made sympathetic with the revelation that they were an abused child. And I was actually curious to see if she would go in the direction of becoming a full-on villain after that revelation. And she arguably does. Not a full-on villain, a, a victim of sorts as well, because she's possessed. But No, I was just going to say, at that point, I mean, when she becomes possessed by the end form, it's almost... It's especially the way it's presented in the book, because in the book, it's not only presented as possession, it's presented as a sexual act yeah. that she invites. She's less a villain at that point, more on the hero's side, essentially. What I was going to argue is that of any of the characters in this book, probably Maggie is the best drawn. Mm-hmm. And she's drawn in a better, in the sort of way that he was trying to do with, I'm trying to remember her name, Anya. Was that the name of the uh, character that we got yes. all the italics in the last book? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's was trying so hard to develop that character into something interesting. And it just sat there on the page like a bunch of italicized squibbles that we could easily skim over because they had nothing to do with the plot. Whereas here, when you listen to the radio play, you get a little of that from Maggie, but she seems to do a sudden face turn only brought on by Max beating up Jeremy, which of course all of us want to do by this point. And the book actually fleshes that out and gives her a reason for wanting to save him and wanting to do that heel turn in a way that the radio play just doesn't allow. So that's one of the parts of this book that I actually appreciated and enjoyed as his characterization of Maggie. Yeah. What what he did that I liked was that he has this absurd, over-the-top Betty Boop image of the dumb blonde and then shows that she's actually not a femme fatale shrewd blonde, but that she's very smart about surviving Mm -hmm. in a way that I thought worked very well for the character to the point where I found it disappointing that her final demise had to be so sexualized because what was interesting about her is when we got some sort of internal glimpse that you know, this is a gig this is a job you know the gun mall job you know she she behaves this way because this is how she gets what she wants not just as a career move but also how she protects herself how she stays alive that this is how she's been conditioned to be able to survive and the ultra sexualized image is a tool that she uses but I, I felt like the extreme sexualization of the possession and death at the end made that the reality instead of the tool in a way that i found disappointed now you say the sexualization well obviously the possession was sexualized but you also say that the death was sexualized in what way i just thought it was supposed to be very titillating sort of the gorgeous woman with the beautiful boobs bursting into flames and the entire possession was so hot and heavy in a way that no one else's possession was Mm -hmm. that I felt it took us from that sort of interesting perspective of instead of just looking at her, because there are so many physical descriptions of her, uh, what is it, titting about. (laughs) So so many, well, it's meant to be, I think, over the top comical, but then we do get these glimpses of her perspective on things. It humanizes that a lot. 
Yeah. At the end, the possession and death scene, the way it was presented, seemed to betray that and go back to just purely viewing her as a purely sexual object instead of oh. that being a performance that she uses. Yeah. I see. But you're right. For most of the book, she's, uh, to coin a phrase, incredibly titty. But yeah, by the end, it, it does have that feel to it, doesn't it? Which makes the other female characters in the book and their depiction... Uh, well, he very much does, you know, virgin and horror with Louisa and Maggie. And mm -hmm. I think he tries to bring some interesting things to it. And that's why it's kind of disappointing when he sort of drops those interesting things with the ends of the characters. Well, and Maggie's death, in a lot of ways, draws a parallel to her own mother's. And, yes, yeah. Um, you know, both of them being killed by the men that they loved. Oh, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's there's a darkness there that's holding shadow over her. Oh, absolutely. And for that matter, Louise's death is brought on by the man that she loves as well, because this all happens because of Giovanni or Giuseppe or whatever the fuck his name was, <laughs> that she ends up in that loop of death because she falls for a guy. And he obviously, even though we never see him, actually, we never see him, his motivations are so clear on the page. He's in it just to get those jewels, not knowing that it's actually Max Vilmio who is trapped in, in behind that wall, mm -hmm. that he doesn't return those feelings. In fact, it's not clear that he doesn't return the feelings, but it would be very surprising if he did. I thought that he was going to turn out to be also Roberto and Guido. I thought there were going to be three different iterations. It was going to be instead of the ancestor and the descendant. I thought that he it was going to be the same guy sort of appearing in three different times. That yeah. would have like been Max. more interesting than it turned out to be. I thought there was some reference to Giuseppe also being a singer or a musician. I, I, I could have imagined that. It could be there. I, I'm, I have to admit, I'm just not interested enough to go back and check. But that would have been an interesting little bit of parallelism. It's just it's not brought out enough in the book for that to really have a dent. Besides which, speaking of getting dented, he dies. So there's no way that he could have a descendant unless, of course, he had one before he was, you know, doing what he was doing with Louisa. Yeah. So there is that, I suppose. Well, I thought that it was going to turn out to be the same guy three different times, and he was going to be in some way in league with Max. Ah, uh, okay. Well, that probably would have been interesting, too. But at this point, the plot is already too complicated. Yeah. But I thought Guido was going to have come home for the jewels and be somehow involved with, with Max's scheme. Yeah, except there were no jewels ever. <laughs> That's a thing. It doesn't sound like there ever were any jewels, and it was just a clever red herring. And not even all that clever, to be honest. But I think you're right about playing Louise as the virgin off against Maggie, who is the whore, for lack of a better word. And then we've got Sarah Jane, who's kind of in between, and briefly she's a boy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, was it in the plotters also where we had... Vicky. Yes. Vicky also dressed up as a page boy and yep. subject in the figure of a boy, theoretically a, a figure of a boy about 14, um, subject to advances from yes. a lascivious older man. Exactly. So there was a, a comic, a, a Marvel comic about 10 years ago. It was um, a compendium of several short stories. And two different writers, I think there were women writers, wrote individually, I think not talking to each other, unsolicited stories, or sorry, not solicited by one another. <laughs> stories about, um, <laughs> I 
<laughs> I told you I was tired. Kitty Pride and Jubilee individually in different stories deciding they were old enough now to hit on Logan. <laughs> politely be politely ignoring it but clearly being kind of weirded out (laughs) so is this like you know sort of like the simultaneous development of pythagorean triplet triangles in the ancient world in about three different locations thousands of miles apart just what naturally develops in the years between when these episodes air and when someone decides to write a novel in the 90s do they just decide that, of course, we should have the female companion dress up as a teenage boy and be menaced by older men? Is, that, oh. is it just a natural development of civilization? I, I'm curious about, about the phenomenon. I think it's more just a function of the plot, to be honest. It's two of the three novels that we've read like this in a way that... <laughs> oh, I know. I know. But Sarah isn't going to fit into that medieval time period as she is able to do with say the middle ages well i just taught myself down the hole there didn't i i think you could say it's a mirroring of what happens in the time warrior that there she has to play up her feminine aspect so that she can get into the castle to you know poison the punch or whatever it is whereas here she has to do the same thing kinda but as a boy but it's not nearly fully developed enough i'm being silly but of, of all the incredibly specific scenarios to to go for in two of those three novels it just amuses me that it's apparently something that a lot of people have in their hearts well i think <laughs> i think the only reason you think that is because you've seen it in the two books from the 90s that we've read yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i can vouch for the fact that i don't remember a lot of cross-dressing going on in the other in the other ones so i i think i think that's fine well what i did like though about that part of the story is that theoretically she is sarah's to dress as a as a young boy because that will be safer yes and instead she is continually uh, sexually harassed by uh women mm-hmm. <laughs> and men and beaten up by <laughs> by a bully and generally chased around with a stick and it was not terribly safe after all and (laughs) i thought that was actually a very nice twist oh you'll be safe it's dangerous to walk around dressed as a woman here dress up as a young boy and then every every bad thing the castle has to offer comes in a hoot setter yes and you notice that the doctor never apologizes for putting her in that kind of danger and is even amused by it but later on the the danger that he directly puts her into he seems sad about when he thinks oh my god i've led her into end space now she can't get out it's like oh for heaven's sake you do this to her all the time (laughs) it's just insane I thought that Letts was trying to, well, maybe not, uh, but it seemed like he was maybe trying to develop a parallel between, we have this brief flashback of Maggie that fleshes her out for her relationship with her father, who is abusive in several different ways. And now she has this mostly business, but she also is attached to him relationship with this older man that she has no idea how much older he actually is. 700 years older. No, no, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, 500 years older? Yeah, there we are. Mm -hmm. And then we have a scene where the doctor is called Sarah a good girl. And she feels kind of embarrassed that she is a sophisticated woman of the world, actually kind of pleased by the sort of, by his approval even though that's sort of a talking down way to put it. And she says something like, well, for crying out loud, he's 700 years older than me. And we have an almost similar scene with Jeremy and the brigadier where there's no uh, mention of centuries of age difference between them. But Jeremy has figured out how to make the in-space creatures turn on one another and fight one another instead of destroying him. And the brigadier thinks he's done a really good job and 
Jeremy is a lot more appreciative and moved by that approval than he maybe would have expected from himself. And I don't know if Lance was maybe trying to go for a parallel there of sort of three different sorts of father figures that the 20 something characters all have. Maybe. It, I get the sense that Letts is trying to throw the kitchen sink at this book, and uh, some of it is sticking. I'm, I know I'm mixing my metaphors because kitchen sinks don't stick to anything, <laughs> but some of it is sticking and some of it isn't. And if he's doing something like that with father figures, it's just kind of, it's doing it accidentally. So I thought they were indicating that Maggie's actual father and this lover who is in who she has gross parallels with that relationship with ultimately bring out the worst in her and that mm -hmm. the brigadier and the doctor bring out the best in, in Jeremy and Sarah, even though they're not actually trying to have that sort of relationship with him. Oh. But it's also, it's also not quite there. So I, I might be seeing things that he didn't intend. Yeah. There's a little too much there for there to be nothing. And there's not enough for there to be something. Yeah. That's this play all over really, essentially, that there's definitely enough there that we could draw some substance out of, but the things that we could draw some substance out of aren't fully developed enough to do that, which is really troubling. In fact, the only thing that's substantive in this whole book is the amount of food that's in it. <laughs> which is his yeah, thing, but I enjoy it. That's, uh... Oh, God, you cannot get out of a Let's Book without feeling hungry, mm -hmm. because in every single chapter, they are eating, and they are eating things that are described in loving detail. In fact, far more than some of the uh, characters are. When are we going on our Mediterranean vacation together? Is what yeah, I want to know. <laughs> exactly. And well, you know what will happen. We'll all plan separate Mediterranean vacations and we'll just end up meeting there accidentally because that's exactly what happens here. Okay, so there was a thrill of horror for me with the initial framing device of the book, which I thought was kind of funny uh, once the danger had passed because we're told that Sarah's writing a racy bad novel. Oh, <laughs> yes. God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she has conspired an unlikely meeting to do to get two characters into bed with one another and then she has a similar unlikely meeting with the brigadier. I'm like, oh, surely he's not going to go there. Unfortunately, he did not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank God for that. Yeah, that would not have gone over well. I mean, you can get away with, in comics with having long-established characters having had children with each other long after the fact, but... <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert, it's Harry o No, not Harry Osborne. Oh, do you told Nor remind us that existed? Norman Osborne. No, don't and speak Glenn. of it. It will go away. I know, I know. <laughs> and the worst part is J. Michael Straczynski is responsible for that shit. Oh my god. Talk about good writers doing bad things. Ah. Well, back, speaking of which, back to this book. Speaking of bad things, what else did we like? What else did we dislike? I actually think his style is a lot of fun. And even though it's fatiguing at times because he's so impressed with his own cleverness. A lot of it is very clever and fun and effervescent and in the mood of, you know, their summer vacation or summer halls or whatever the correct terminology is. Right. Um, and I, I thought it was... <sighs> so many of the ones that we read have much more, recently have much more, much heavier, more social themes to them. That it was, it was nice to do something that was just sort of a zany Scooby-Doo zipping about in boats, eating good charcuterie. Sorry. <laughs> There's definitely that, yes. Yeah. How about you, Dalton? I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if the plot just felt too long for me. Like, having them be in current day Italy, 
and then going to 1818 and then back to the current day and then to what was it 1400 14 92 92 ish mm-hmm. yeah there was a, a lot of the back and forth and kind of the the doctor putting things together slowly and it being drawn out over these three different time periods. I don't know. For, for me, it, it did not really gel. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, with him realizing that it was the comet that was the thing that was dragging this out and making, making the crack appear, it just, yeah, I don't know. It It felt super long. I feel like if this would have been a much shorter book, it would have fit together easier for me. Um, yeah. But but a lot of the instances of them going to the different time periods just seemed like there was a lot of nothing going on. Right. And I think a lot of that is a function of the fact that this is a novelization of an audio drama. Yeah. In fact, what seems to be happening here is um, Paradise of Death was five episodes. This one is six. Now, a six-parter in Doctor Who is pretty long to begin with, but... At least on screen, a six-parter ends up being four episodes of generally good plot and at least one or two of simply running around. Yeah. They can't do that in audio. And, in fact, part of the reason why this reads so long is because, in fact, I noticed this as I was listening to the audio play. This is how much I love you, listeners. I actually listened to the whole f***ing audio play after reading this book. So I've suffered through it twice. (laughs) <laughs> and the audio play goes by at one hell of a clip. It doesn't feel like a six-parter at all, but it is still two and a half hours worth of story. And the action sequences have to be described by the characters in dialogue as they're happening. Here, Let's has the luxury of expanding those into prose pieces. Yeah. And that's why the book is so damn long, because there's so many of those action sequences. Yeah, it just yeah. I feel like even if it was cut in half, um, yeah. just just truncate it a little bit. We don't one. We don't need to know that they're eating every time they turn around. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but yeah, it just everything could have just been shortened. Yeah, this book could have been a third shorter with the food taken out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty easy. I don't think it would be nearly as enjoyable. I, I feel like he's manufacturing the sort of shimmering synthetic fabric by the yard. And <laughs> well, but it is entertainment product and it's a, it's a crass way to put it, but it's, I thought for the most part, enjoyable entertainment. It's it's style, not substance. And this is a kind of book that were I taking it to a beach where our beach is not in lockdown. <laughs> I mean, I, I would have picked up this book instead of a 19th century Russian novel. And I would want, I would want a good three yards <laughs> right? of story exactly. here. Well, you know, like we have this sort of the amusing recurring blunderbuss of, of Uncle Mario. We're told about his sort of skinny legs sticking out and all the different objects he shoots out of it like there there are so many you know sort of amusing little vignettes in there that are definitely parts that don't add up to a whole lot but are are the parts that i found enjoyable mm-hmm. there's exactly. nothing very deep going on here yeah but, that is true but i i thought it had a nice shimmering surface and okay. i i think that that's my thing is compared to what i'm used to in a target book what I'm used to in a novelization, this feels just like so much. Yeah. I don't know that there's anything necessarily horrible about it. It just feels like this is so much book 
mm-hmm. <laughs> more than, than I'm used to. And so it's like, if we could just shorten it up a little bit, get it, get it down to the essentials. Hearing you know? all of this is a dirty joke in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's not how long you make it. It's how you make it long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it does have that feel to it. And I think what Dalton has put his finger on is the fact that most of the novelizations we've read, not all of them, but most have been paring down the story as it originally appeared. Whenever we get a Dick's novelization, for instance, it's rare that it goes beyond 126 pages, even if it's a six-parter. In fact, the next book we'll be reading is 126 pages exactly, and it's an adaptation of a six-parter. That's how much he's able to pair out of a story that's traditionally a six-parter. Here, Let's is expanding on something that's already chock-full of plot, because it's not six episodes of visual drama. It's six episodes of audio drama and audio drama is always chock full from start to finish with dialogue and with exposition and all that he's got to fit all of that in and do it so that the visual element is also brought up as well so yeah that's part of the reason why this book just seems so incredibly fucking long yeah feels bloated but yeah like like allison said i feel like if i wasn't comparing it to what we've had before and i just picked up this book and was going to read it i I would have found it a little more enjoyable but yeah yeah it just feels bloated speaking of the vocabulary i ended up doing quite a bit in fact you saw in my notes that i had to do a lot of looking up of terms because apparently barry letts has never been able to get rid of the idea that doctor who has to be in some way educational yeah so we get words such as posset, as in the doctor says he's going to get Sarah a posset when he's in 1818, and she says, I'd prefer a cup of tea. And apparently it's a big deal that they have to unlock the cabinet to get the tea, because, of course, tea was done in a very ritualized way, from what I understand. But I was not familiar with what a posset is. A posset is a hot drink made of milk, which is curdled, with wine or with ale. Hmm. If that's what you're having now, I understand why you don't sound happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's not. However, here's the thing. Possets can also be desserts. So I made a lemon posset just the other night. Uh, unfortunately, the way you're supposed to make it is with heavy cream and sugar and lemon juice. And what I didn't realize is that it's the crystallization effect of the sugar that causes it to set. And if you try using something like sucralose, it Mm. doesn't set. So we ended up having lemon-flavored creamy milk. Not exactly a tasty treat. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Anyway. (laughs) What were some words you had to look up, Allison? I should have kept a list. Goodness, let me see if I can look at my Google search. That's all right. I got a few. Uh, I have one, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, catamite. Catamite. Yes, oh, I had to yes. look that one up. <laughs> Which even Sarah didn't know, except to, to say, does that mean what I think it means? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Welcome to the 90s, everyone. Yes. yes. Catamites and Dr. Who. Uh, yeah. And cow shit between their toes. Lovely. And uh, poltroon, which is, uh, I think, a word I learned from Mark Twain. Oh, yeah. Of course. 
Yeah. I think it was more uh, less sophisticated vocabulary, more amusingly archaic vocabulary. Yeah. Yes, it is. Especially Let's uses a couple of phrases in chapter 12 that I thought were particularly interesting as one of them is an accidental Doctor Who reference in and of itself. He refers to Sarah going into a brown study. This does not mean that she has gone into a library with brown walls. <laughs> It's instead a reference to the fact that brown used to be used the same way that we use blue now as a metaphor to connote melancholy. Okay. So being in a brown study means being lost in thought, but in a melancholy way. And interestingly enough, there's a Sixth Doctor story where the Doctor asks his companion... Very quiet now. Not quite your style to go into a brown study. Brown study? It's the vocabulary of all the time, Lord, so antediluvian. Which meant that I ended up looking up antediluvian. That one I know. <laughs> yes, that one we know. And the that answer is yes. Know. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. It's very much before the flood, definitely. He also talks about boxing the compass, and he says that the doctor taught a young, and it's implied that it's Horatio Hornblower, even though Horatio Hornblower was fictional, that he taught him to do something called boxing the compass. And I looked this up, and I swear to God, I spent an entire hour just reading about this because it is so ridiculously fascinating. Do either of you know what that is? I only know it because I read your notes. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea before. Okay, I so you didn't read the notes, so I don't know. <laughs> yes. Well, that's fine. Boxing the compass is something that sailors used to have to do. It is naming all 32 points of a compass from north in order without stopping. And it's useful for navigation at sea. And this is something that Letts himself probably knew how to do in real life because he served in the Navy. And we all know, or we should know, what the cardinal points are. Cardinal directions are north, south, east, and west. Fewer people know that northeast, southeast, northwest, and southwest are the intercardinal points. Mm -hmm. But then you get half points, like north-northwest and south-southwest, which sailors would probably say south-southwest, which is where that comes from. And then you get quarter or by points, like northeast by north and south by west, and all 32 points correspond to a different degree on the compass. So northwest by west, for instance, is 303.7 degrees on the compass. So when you box the compass, you're going through all of those different 32 points. Ooh. Of course, these days we don't have to because we've got GPS. But yeah. Ooh. Interesting, because I never knew what that meant when prepositions got involved. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's different points on the compass, and it gets increasingly more exact as it goes, which it would have to. I mean, if you're navigating at sea, you would have to know, especially early on. Mm -hmm. What, where those points were. But these days we don't have to because of, you know, GPS. Anyway, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it tells you something that that's one of the most interesting things I found about this book, <laughs> is having to learn something like that. I guess I, compared to the last Barry Letts that we read, it didn't bother me here that everything sort of came to nothing in the end because it was always building to that. <laughs> Whereas, well, and I don't mean that as an insult either. Like I said, I keep using the term frothy, but I don't mean that as an insult either. It's, except for the occasional excruciating death, it's it's a much lighter story. Yeah. Um, with some great little monster designs in it. And 
what he does in, oh, I'm going to use the W word in a workmanlike way. Um, what he does that's well, very effectively, inter- very by the book, but it's in the book because it works, is he regularly introduces references to all five senses. And I think that's why he talks about food so much. He yeah. talks about Maggie's hair texture several times. He talks about smells. He talks about tastes. He talks about tactile experiences. And he doesn't pretend to be going anywhere this time. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, like I said, it, it, it is a Scooby-Doo, and he doesn't pretend that it's a, a more profound statement on society that doesn't actually resolve or coalesce into a statement at, quite at the end. So right. it, the last one, I was interested, so it was a big letdown, and I didn't feel that letdown on this one. Because you, were, you weren't really expecting anything big out of it. No, it's going to be like the end of a firecracker that we all experience every night in such volumes now. Which is just, <laughs> just you know, little cracking, pop, crackling, popping, uh, popping noises. But, you know, what else did you yes. expect? It's one of the cheap ones. Yeah, Although that's true. some of the ones that were set off by the high school the 4th of July were not the cheap ones. It was no. rather an astonishing display. <laughs> Yeah, let me make that clear to the listeners. We're recording this on July 8th. Originally, we were going to record it on July 5th. Luckily, we didn't because the fireworks were still going off the night of July 5th, and they were quite loud ones. Wasn't this a national phenomenon that since all the big municipal shows were canceled this year, that there's a much larger than usual secondary market for professional grade fireworks you usually can't just buy as a civilian? (laughs) Yes, and because of that, there's a larger-than-normal profusion of Karens and Kens who came out to complain about it and got caught on camera doing so, calling the cops on their neighbors of color who decided to let off fireworks because it was indeed the 4th of July and it was their f***ing house. But there you go. (sighs) God, sorry. (laughs) A little annoyed with everything going on in our country right now. Anyway, 1975 or 1996 or whenever this damn thing was going on. I find it interesting, speaking of just oddities in this book, things that you thought were going to go somewhere, that Sarah starts off this book writing a very bad romance novel. And by romance novel, I don't mean in the modern sense. I mean like Mysteries of Udolfo romance novel, gothic romance. And I'd never heard of Anne Ratcliffe before. I mm-hmm. Yeah, I have well, now, but... I, I certainly have because I, I've unfortunately read, well, parts of that book, not all of it, because it really is a slog. But she hasn't read it either, which explains why at the beginning of the book, she's trying to rewrite it. <laughs> she's essentially writing a gothic romance at the beginning, not realizing that, that she's reinventing the wheel. And it's a very odd place to have Sarah Jane Smith, of all people, going. Whereas the rest of this book is a very good Sarah Jane story, I thought. He seems to have a better grasp this time on how to handle her. He seems to have... He always had a very good grasp on the Doctor. And the Doctor and Brigadier relationship, one of the best parts of this book is when the Brigadier says something and the Doctor doesn't want to embarrass him, and he's visually stopping and starting and then starting again because he doesn't want to embarrass his old friend. And Sarah thinks to herself, my goodness, they really are fond of each other. And it's just this beautiful little emotional moment in a story that doesn't really earn it. But this story is... It doesn't have to earn anything because of when it comes out. It's spending the capital of decades of stories that came before it. That's true. The only people listening 
to this radio play, the only people reading this novel are people who are not new to the characters, but are already invested in the characters. And when it came out, we're looking for new adventures of the characters they already know and love in a way that I, I think makes that a, an understandable thing to do here. He, he He's right that, that the reader is bringing in those relationships already from previous stories because they've read or seen not only the stories that come before this, but the stories that come after this. Yeah, I agree. Except for us poor saps, Dalton and I, who have not read the ones who come after this. <laughs> well, not yet. and that's fine. Well, you've kind of read them already because <laughs> this is your introduction to what those later stories are going to be like. And in some degree, it's very much a sign of its times because you get all of that backstory for the Brigadier which is very good, by the way, but Letts himself is going to accidentally contradict it with the next book he writes. <laughs> He's going to have pinned down the Brigadier's age as being totally wrong in the next book, which is crazy since he was the one that did it. But there's a lot of this sort of thing going on. Later writers are going to pin down exactly why it is that Sarah Jane blushes when the Doctor says something along the lines of, well, they all have things that they are still working out about their lives after death. And she says, oh, well, I don't have anything to regret like that. And he says, don't you? How lucky of you. And he looks at her very intently and she blushes. And it's like, yeah, and we find out later that she has quite a bit that she has to be worried about. And Lance is, has to be given credit for, you know, forward thinking or at least writing in that era of Doctor Who where the sort of backstory was still being plotted. Yeah, that's interesting because that seemed like an odd beat to me when I was reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, given that Sarah is treated by Letts very much as an adult female, as opposed to the way she in some ways is treated when she was introduced and the way the doctor treats her as, you know, being a good girl, he knows she's an adult. Well, yes, and when the doctor says she's a good girl, that's very much treated as her, you know, it being a very strange thing to say to an adult for her to actually enjoy hearing. But it's it's put in context is a weird thing that works. Yeah, it's almost as if Barry Letts is addressing all the times that the doctor has ever said that before the time that he was working on Doctor Who and since then, because it's not going to go away. But if you think about it, to the Doctor, everybody who is female and younger than him is going to be in some way a girl because of the age gap, which is interesting. And that it's actually Sarah figuring out that, yeah, it's patronizing, but she's able to smile wryly at it. Well, also, it's patronizing. Why don't I feel more patronized? Oh, well, here's why. Yeah, precisely that. And it's something that we don't get in any of the other books because it just doesn't happen in any of the other books. I, mean, I thought it was kind of amusing that she was writing the, the silly novel at the beginning of this one, but I, I've read both of the Let's books as he has both Sarah and Jeremy as sort of self-insert characters, yes. where she is she is the young, starving writer version of him, but also him seeing himself as a very cool guy when he was younger. <laughs> yeah, and then I think that's it. Jeremy is the sad sack him, the yes. sort of... You know, the, the sort of character Joss Whedon likes to put in as a self-insert. <laughs> well, you know, the Xander oh, character. God. Yeah, he really is Xander, isn't he? <laughs> Except more annoying. <laughs> but at least Xander you come around on, whereas Jeremy, yeah, no. He still ends up pretty much in the same place where he started. Speaking of which, that whole thing about the writing and, you know, gothic romances of the sort Louisa likes, it will probably be instructive to know that Barry Letts was... And this is true of Terrence Sticks, too. They were huge aficionados of Jane Austen. And Jane Austen 
was specifically the anti Anne Radcliffe. She was basically the writer that came along and said, oh, these old novels, let's make fun of them. And she does it with her book, Northanger Abbey. Louisa is essentially the lead character for Northanger Abbey. Mm, Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. In fact, even that part of the book, if you look at it carefully in the way he does sentence structure and such, it is written in a very Austin-esque style, Mm. which is oppressive, but it's completely lost with all this other stuff going on, which is unfortunate. And another mashup of styles, Berto, a.k.a. Elvis, Uh, talks not like Elvis Presley, but like Boonhauer? Gostar mandolin, man. Oh, yeah. I know, right? It's like, good God. Yeah, and then, and then you find out that the Elvis impersonator actually has a purpose being in the book because he ends up being the heir, mm-hmm. which saves the brigadier from going totally Italian. Because we never knew the Brigadier was Italian before, even though this is why this isn't all that far out. The tradition of British Italians is not that far from us. We've had a doctor played by one, Peter Capaldi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, that, that does make... In fact, Scottish Italians, which Peter Capaldi also is. But it's just odd to have it here, especially with this character who's talking in this weird pigeon English, which is really just embarrassing. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, that scene where they're all waxing poetic about marmalade, (laughs) that is in the radio play. Breakfast isn't breakfast without marmalade. You have a point. But it's got to be the right sort of marmalade, Mm -hmm. the bitter sort. Yeah, thick and dark. With chunks. I prefer the jelly stuff myself. Yes. It reminded me of Prairie Home Companion. Yeah. uh, Mommy's mommy's little baby likes rhubarb pie. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It really is. So for Freudian statements, I would like to submit this entry. I remember once when I was not yet breached, I stole a sweetmeat, my favorite, from my mother's bedside. (laughs) But when I came to taste my prize, it turned to ashes on my tongue. Yes. That's one of the things I had to look up. Is a sweetmeat not a testicle? No. (laughs) No, no. A sweetmeat is a very old-fashioned phrasing for a candy. I mean, it's come to mean anything like a boiled sweet or something like a... We would call them jawbreakers. Okay. But... In medieval times, a sweetmeat probably would have been, like it was like a cake. That's a little better than well, what I, <laughs> obviously how I interpreted it. Because my first thought was, man, of all the, the things, <laughs> of all the foods to put in there. And also, who keeps meat just on their bedside table with a snack? <laughs> yeah, that would be very nasty, indeed. Allison, I'm familiar with what you're talking about, and I cannot think of what, what the actual phrase is. But there is sweetmeats. There is something that that is uh, yeah, it's uh, like livers. Oh, what is it, Tony? You have ordered them and eaten uh, them in front of me at my birthday one year. Oh, that's right. Um, I thought it was well. We can cut all this out, right? No, no. Let's talk about it. We we need to believe me. It'll be easier just to leave it in. You're right. I did. What was it? Sweetbread. Sweet bread. Sweet bread. There we go. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, so, I, I re- request that my idiocy perhaps be edited out if you're feeling kind, <laughs> but I cannot require it. No. Yeah, so I read, so you would understand my, 
<laughs> that being memorable in my mind when I read that, thinking of sweetbreads. I did yes. indeed eat sweetbreads in front of you, but, but it, it is, that's fact, not the same thing as sweetmeats. Yes. Yes. No. no. Which is, it's con- yeah, it's confusing because sweetbread is not bread. But it is my confusion, <laughs> not the writers. No. Now, the other thing, the thing that I looked up in that sequence was when he said before he was breached. And I was like, wait, what? Breach? What the hell is he talking about? He's talking about getting his breeches as a boy. In other words, long pants. Mm. Mm. Which we know is breeches. Yes, exactly. Because it was tradition that carried on well into the 19th century and part of the 20th that you essentially dressed boys in girls' clothes until they were like four or five or six or whatever. Sometimes they never came out of them. But to be breached is to put on breeches. Okay. So yeah, that's what that is. What what in the world happened when the doctor faced Maximilian? Their fight? Is it just... A battle of wits, a battle of belief. Yeah. Okay. I, it thought is. That, I thought he thought the doctor convinced Max to absorb all of the in space beings to increase his own power to prove that he was the most powerful being in the universe. Well, that's what, oh, that's what he did eventually. But when they were. But you're talking about in end space. In end space, where they're, you know, yeah, they're both giants. And remember that the nature of end space is that the end forms are thought of as demons by those who are stuck there. Yeah. Because they believe they deserve to be punished. So it's all about belief. And it's Sarah's belief in the doctor that allows him to have the extra necessary mental energy to convert the sonic screwdriver, which isn't a weapon at all, into something that is offensive. Because the doctor tends to use it defensively. This is supposedly the first time Sarah's ever seen it. And as it turns out, it is. Because we never get the first scene of her ever seeing it. This is where it comes from. And my interpretation of it is Max, being from medieval times, thinks that he is the devil. And thinks that he has dethroned Lucifer and Beelzebub and Mephistopheles and whatever other names the Prince of Lies was going by at that point. Right. And the Doctor has to face him on those terms or else he can't defeat him. That's my interpretation of it. Which is why the Doctor ends up having to fight him with a sword. Because that's the only thing that Max is going to see as capable of defeating him is this great big massive angelic sword that can only be imagined if the doctor thinks of it as one something like that i don't know i kind of got lost at that point myself okay i thought it was some manifestation maybe if not guilt on max's part but viewing himself as evil in the same way that those who were suffering in in space were suffering because they believed it would happen and they believed it deserved it that he believes that he should be fought the way one would fight the devil and so yes. he saw weapons turned against him because that's what he feels on some level he deserves mm. yeah it would have to be the flaming sword of you know our lord savior jesus christ who's going to come on judgment day and smite everybody with a sword that he will pull out of his mouth according to revelations but yeah Something along those lines, I think, that Maximilian believes that that is how the only way he could be defeated is by somebody who is like that, I guess. Okay. Yeah, it's it's confusing. Believe it or not, it's it actually makes more sense on the page than it does in audio, because in audio you have Sarah kind of giving a uh, blow by blow description of what's happening as if she's calling a fight. I've had it with M-Space. 
Things don't stay the same from one minute to the next. Where have all the people gone? I didn't see them vanish. <laughs> yeah, she turns into Harry Carey for that scene. <laughs> okay. Pretty ridiculous. All right. Yeah. So, oh, by the way, there is a weird reference in this book. Sarah talks about a sub-lieutenant who called her old thing, and it seems to be a reference to the next new companion, who's going to be Harry Sullivan. But it just couldn't be him, because there's no indication that she ever met Harry Sullivan before this story. So it's not clear why Barry Letts would have done that, except maybe to prefigure that old-style sailors of the sort that Harry Sullivan are would be most likely to call a young thing like her an old thing. I don't know, but it's in there. I figured it was some kind of literary reference that went over my head, like Anne Radcliffe. Well, yeah, it's... It's not so much a literary reference, this is just, it's a Doctor Who reference, but it's a misplaced one. It's just really, there are lots of those in this book. It's very odd. It's an odd book all around, to be honest. There's a lot of eating in it. It's scatological in a way, literally and figuratively, that we haven't had in Doctor Who books before. He does show off with the vocabulary. At one point, we get a description of Jeremy's face being Odile, which is basically green around the gills. So it's like Letts is trying to avoid cliches as he's having Sarah try to do again, which is just bizarre. I don't know. In fact, the online discontinuity guide in their final thoughts on this book essentially say that it's just odd. It is an odd story. It doesn't quite fit in with the 1990s. It doesn't fit in with the time period that it's meant to be part of. It doesn't feel like a Let's Era story at all. It's just very strange. Doesn't fit in in the 90s in what way, did the person say? Well... Because that's what it seemed to me. It was extremely 90s and sort of best and worst way. It is extremely 90s, but it's 90s as seen through the eyes of Barry Letts, which is going to be, understandably, a very different experience than the 90s seen through the eyes of just about any other Doctor Who writer from that time. And it's one of the things that marks the difference between the books that were written by older writers and the ones written by younger ones. This one's trying to be edgy and adult in a way that's a very aged concept of what edgy and adult is. See, I felt the opposite, that it was kind of writing it wearing sneakers and like those huge 90s sneakers, blazing white. And was trying to write something more mature, but is like an 18-year-old's idea of mature that's actually just more swears and use of the terms boobs and tits and, you know, some more explicit monster violence. It's actually sophomoric in a way that's perfectly viable. Like I said, I'll go back to the term uh, entertainment product, but it's not especially sophisticated in the way that, you know, he might think it is. I... Right. And I think we're essentially saying the same thing about it. And unfortunately, it doesn't really reflect well on Let's either way. But it does feel like he's saying, oh, this needs to be edgy and hip. And now not realizing that hip is a term that hasn't been used in several decades. And it's got that same sort of disconnected feel to it, like it's written by somebody who doesn't quite understand the language. Mm. I felt that about his attempt to do different kinds of accents. I, I don't feel like reading this in 95, it would have, I mean, I think it would have felt like very of the moment humor of this kind of humor, not edgy humor, but just sort of, 
you know, screwball comedy humor. Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. How old was he when this was written? That is a very good question, and I knew you were going to ask me, and I should have looked it up. In fact, let me look it up right now. Barry Letts was born in 1925. Holy cow. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's so, a Harry Carey reference. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He would have been 70 when he wrote this. Wow. Yeah. All right, then I'm actually reasonably impressed at how he changed with the times. Even if I call it dated 90s-style screwball humor, it's still very much 90s screwball humor. It's not 50s, it's not 60s, it's not 70s. There are elements of 50s in it, but not strongly. Yeah, he's kept up with the times, but there's still a little bit of a disconnect in realizing where Doctor Who has gone. And it it does read a bit like somebody who has heard that, oh, they're swearing in the Doctor Who books now. I guess that's something we can do now. Not realizing that it doesn't have to stop at the scatological. Not realizing that books written around this time are having Doctor Who companions have sex in the books... <laughs> which had never been referenced before. And so you get things like the catamite joke, and you get things like cow sh** between their toes, and you get things like the doctor saying damn, which, believe it or not, is, for that time period, kind of controversial. I mean, of all the doctors, you'd expect the Pertwee doctor to probably trot out a damn every once in a while, but he never did in the show, and he never does in any other form of Doctor Who media. And yes, before anyone takes my head off, I did remember after recording this that there was a missing adventure that featured the Third Doctor in which he pretended to be a member of a club and at one point let rip with a dam. But again, I can be forgiven for forgetting that, can't I? I mean, how many of the missing adventures really are all that memorable? So it it has that weird kind of disconnected feel. A little bit. And yet he's still having characters say things like, gone for a Burton, which is another thing I had to look up. What does it mean? It's a gentle way in World War II of saying that a member of the RAF had been killed in action. It also means, if you're saying this idea is gone for a Burton, it means this this is fizzled out. No one has a definitive answer why it's called that. So you have really antediluvian dialogue going on here in a way that no other 90s writer is going to write in, except for the older writers. And even Terrence Dix isn't going to do that in his 1990s books. So it's bizarrely disconnected from everything else around it, except, of course, Barry Letts is going to bring up that teacher of the doctors on Gallifrey again, because that's going to be referred to in the next story and in the next, if I'm remembering correctly, because I'm already I'm already on the next book. So, yeah, Jesus. Oh, there's one other thing. The doctor says something about something being humbug, and he says, I'd go so far as to call it gammon. Mm. That word does not mean in 1996 or 1995 what it means now. (laughs) Uh, For British listeners, British listeners will know what this word is. It's going to be something of a revelation to American listeners. Gammon now is an Anglo-centric slur used for Brexit-supporting whites since around 2012. It's, It's a nasty term. People get really upset if you call them a gammon. It didn't used to mean that. It meant the same thing as humbug, which is nonsense. And it actually derives from Australian Aboriginal English. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, I I know what you mean, Allison. I had to look up so many words in this book, and it was in some ways more enjoyable than reading the actual book. (laughs) So there we are. 
Um, I'm just looking at the part where Sarah Jane tells the doctor he looks like Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) That is rather cute. And it's about the sort of thing that you could only pull off in uh, audio, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Shall we go to Goodreads? Sure. Let's go. Okay. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers that follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is a rather low 2.99. In fact, this book is so seemingly well-loved that no one in our own Goodreads group wrote a review of it. That says something. So I went with the reviews I could find on Goodreads. Adam James gives it three stars and says, The Ghosts of Endspace is not a great book. The Ghosts of Endspace, however, is much better than its reputation. I'm honestly dumbfounded by the vitriol directed at Barry Lutz's Missing Adventures novel. This is a classic Doctor Who story, which was the mission of the Missing Adventures, with goofy characters and over-the-top anime and some convenient plot contrivances. How is any of that different from most other Doctor Who novels? I think we can all agree that all of us would be better off without Let's use of the word tits in a Doctor Who story. Just, you know, don't bury. <laughs> James Barnard gave us two stars and says there's nothing wrong with Doctor Who stories asking the big questions about life and death. What has always bothered me is where the writers feel they are well-placed to answer them. (laughs) There was understandable furor last year when a TV story appeared to show what happens to our personalities after we die. He's talking specifically about um, the Cybermen story in uh, Peter Paul era that introduced Missy. But that was revealed as a sophisticated confidence trick by that serial's villain. There's no such ambiguity here, and space is, we are told, on no uncertain terms where we go when we die. My real concerns about this approach really aren't helped by the confusion between Let's Null Space and the end space of the TV show's season 18, on which Let's worked as executive producer. The plot itself is padded out by stereotypical villains, ghosts, and some highly questionable Italian ancestry for the Brigadier. (laughs) None of it works. It's all, I'm pained to say, a mess. The fact that Jeremy Fitzoliver is not this time the most irritating thing in the book should tell you just how below standard the elements which make up this book really are. Still, at least it's not dull. And finally, in one of their famous 42-word reviews, Derelict Space Sheep rated it two stars and says, Unfortunately, the gratified nostalgia of having a new Third Doctor adventure after 21 years, even with strong performances by John Pertwee and Elizabeth Slayton, could not make up for the manifest shortcomings, namely dire minor characters and plot, of this audio adventure. So it's not well loved. Allison, out of five stars, how much would you give this? Well, was that last person reviewing the audio, the the audio play, though, rather than the novelization? I'm not sure. The 42-word review could have been of the book. It could have been of the audio book because the audio play is considered an audio book. So, yeah. But either way, <laughs> I, 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 I get what you're saying, though. The, the audio performances by John Pertwee and Liz Slade are pretty good, but they still can't make up for the book or the story, I should say. So out of five stars, what would you give this? I'm going to go 
two stars, which is maybe higher than you were expecting. I, I just can't work out the hate for it that others have. I mean, it sort of feels like someone wanted to do a little decoration on their dorm room wall. And they couldn't really afford to buy a poster or a magazine <laughs> with pictures to clip out of it. So they made a nice little design out of Elmer's glue and they threw some silver glitter on it and they put it on the wall and it's perfectly fun. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's, it's not great art. It's not it does not have pretense to great art. I I I thought it had, like I said, a nice shimmering surface for for all of its flaws. It did not profoundly disappoint me like the last one did, which I guess is David with some very faint praise indeed. Did not <laughs> profoundly disappoint me like the last one did. But, right. Like I said, exactly. I, I, I find his his style fun and enjoyable. It's yes, it's product by the yard, but it's it's serviceable, enjoyable product. All right, Dalton. I I would probably say two point five for me. The writing itself is not horrible. I think the story is what I just. I'm not enjoying. Yeah, there there are some some good character bits in there. We get, you know, the characterization of Maggie, which is really great, but the story itself just seems really bloated, overly long to me. So that that just kind of drug it down for me. So 2.5. Okay. And as for me, Allison, this is going to astound you. You and I agree for once. Mm. I also gave it a 2. Yes, but for you, that's nailing it to the wall. Yeah, it kind of is. I, it's not as much a nailing as the last book, because I went back and saw that I'd given that a 1.5, which I stand by. This one is definitely a 2, because I like it better than the last one. That isn't to say I like it necessarily, but I am a huge Jane Austen fan, so I enjoyed the references to Jane Austen. I'm also a fan of gothic romances, so getting that stuff from the medieval period, which is very gothic seem to work pretty well. Where it falls apart is when everything tries to get mixed up with the other things, such as the disquisitions about the nature of heaven and hell, and trying to definitively figure out what that is for the Doctor Who universe, which is part of the reason why I had serious trouble with Torchwood doing much the same thing and saying, oh, there's nothing after death. There's nothing, period. End of sentence. Forget it. And then going back on that and saying, oh, there's something pretty horrifying after death. It's like, okay, drop it. Let's not do this anymore, because if you suffer with thanatophobia as much as I do, you don't want to hear that from your favorite show. That being said, this book probably sent me to Google more often than any other book I've read from the Doctor Who range. Those were enjoyable trips, not only because they took me away from the book, but because I actually learned something along the way, which is fine. But yeah, I tend to agree with the received pronunciations on this book, which is that it's a weird duck. So there we are. Well, thank you guys. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we're continuing our discussion of the books of Pertwee's final season with Terrence Dick's novelization of the final Brian and Hale script, because you know you wanted to go back to Peladon. Here it is, The Monster of Peladon. Uh, <laughs> the moment we have not been waiting for. Exactly right. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces like a crazy person. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. 
Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Just hold me, but hold this.